there was a composer, his name was Igor Stravinsky, and he, uh, he wrote this piece uh, for a, a soloist who could play the violin. It was a very difficult piece. And Stravinsky had an apprentice, a disciple of his, and he gave this to and encouraged this person to learn the piece, and that person tried for weeks to learn it, and they couldn't figure it out. So after a few weeks of trying to figure out this soloist for this violinist, the person went back to Stravinsky and said, I just can't do it. It's too difficult. I've tried. I can't perfect it. I can't do it. And Stravinsky said, I understand. He said, but what I'm looking for is the sound of someone who's trying to do it. And when I think about all the stuff that happened this summer, like we sent kids to go paint houses and none of them are professional painters. All we were doing is saying, will you just go try to go bless somebody? And they did. We didn't send people out who have written books on short-term mission trips here in Memphis or Panama. We sent people out and just said, can you just go try to spread the love of God everywhere you go? That's all we're asking. Sometimes the best thing we have to offer God is just showing up somewhere or taking a step or trying something. God doesn't give the church the Great Commission every Sunday and say, next Sunday, I'm going to give you a grade based on how you did. A, B, C, D, F. It doesn't work that way. God's just asking, will you just try? Will you just take a step? Will you just show up and just see what God will do? So here's a statement I want to give you. Feel free to take a picture of it, write it down. But how we have encountered God in the past should help us live boldly for God in the future. That how we have encountered, how we have experienced God in the past should encourage us, should give us the boldness, the bravery that we need to go and do something in the future. And I want this for students, and I want this for adults. Because most of us, I mean, we've, we've been students. I love the youth ministry I grew up in. And what I want for students is to know that how they've experienced God and all these little mission efforts they've been a part of is that God's not asking them to hit pause on that and then come back next summer to do some really cool things for God. When I was a student, there were times I thought God was, was at his best in the summertime. And then in August, mid-August, we went back to school and God kind of hit pause. God took a couple of melatonin. God played it easy through the school year and then the next summer we're going to experience God in some profound ways. As adults, it's not summer to summer, it's Sunday to Sunday. As adults, the temptation is let's experience God and learn some things on a Sunday and then maybe we'll offer up a prayer or two, but the next Sunday we'll come and try to experience God again. How we have experienced God even this morning doesn't cause us to push pause and hopefully experience God again next Sunday. It calls us to be those people who are courageous and bold for God in everything we do. So open your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 16. You may want to put a marker in one, flip to the other. This morning I'm aware of the time, I'm aware of everything that's gone on in this worship service. And we praise God for a baptism, we praise God for testimonies. What I want to do, I want to offer up a couple of verses to you, a couple of passages. I want to root them in a location. I want to share a couple of uh, stories about that. And then I want to end with us coming together, committing together as a church around the table. Uh, as you're flipping to those places, let me just remind you of a couple of things. We have celebrated our students this morning and what God has done in and through them. And as a church, we are committed to pouring into the youth ministry. One of our core values is that we strive to give the next generation a compelling story to live into. And we're in the process right now of trying to hire two youth ministers, a male youth minister and a female youth minister. This is a commitment of this church. that We want both a man and we want a woman who are coming together to lead our students closer to Jesus, closer to the heart of Jesus, to the mission of Jesus. So we're asking for you to pray for our search team, pray for our youth ministry leadership team, 
Pray for Logan as he continues the next few weeks and months in his work here. Pray for our students that God will surround them with what they need to stay close to Jesus as they, work, uh, as they move into the future. Next Sunday, I'm kicking off a new series. It's a five-week series and, uh, on empathy, on what it means to be a church that is connected. And the month of August, I usually do some kind of series about connection, connectedness. So we're going to uh, enter into a five-week series on that. If you want to read Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, just three verses, that's where we're going to be next week. It's where Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Next Sunday night at 5 o'clock is the awakening. We haven't had an awakening in a few, uh, a few months. Uh, beginning in August, the awakening is back. It's a once a month, just one time a month, we have a worship service. There'll be a time of worship, a time of teaching, and a time of an extended time of prayer. And next, next Sunday, we're going to start, uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to work you through the names of God for the next probably year and a half to two years. So every month we're going to come and we're going to talk about the names of God and what it teaches us about the character of God and who God is and how we apply that. How we can learn about the heart of God and what difference it makes in our lives. And next week on Sunday morning and in the Awakening Sunday night, we'll have a time to pray for all of our teachers, educators, students, those going back to school. How excited are you for school to be back? Renee, you ready? You ready for this? All right. But right now in Ephesians chapter 6, here's what it says. Finally. Ephesians is six chapters. Right, so Paul's been working through a lot of stuff in those first five and a half chapters about identity in God, about who the church is in God. He offers up more prayers than he offers up in any other letter that he writes. Chapter four is a lot of basic practical things for the Christian life. Chapter five, he starts talking about relationships with husbands and wives and fathers and their children and masters and slaves and then finally it's like Paul is saying okay all that I've tossed at you now finally here's here's the charge here's what I'm giving you to do be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power put on the full armor of God the full armor so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Think about it. He's saying this in a time when the Roman Empire was at its best. Today we are on the last day of the month of July, which was named after Julius Caesar, because if you had that much power, you could name months after yourself. So the entire New Testament is written in times of where the Roman Empire was like at its best. Everything bowed down to the Roman Empire. And now Paul's saying, Rome's not your enemy. But your enemy isn't anything that's flesh and blood. It's all the powers of darkness that are working this world to like rob you of joy and rob you of your conviction to Jesus. In verse uh, 13, it says, Therefore put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. So the full armor, not just a little bit of armor. Uh, I think when you think armor, we think military. Maybe when you think armor, maybe the best way for you to wrap your mind around this is even if you don't like football, when you play football, it's a good thing for you put, put, to put on all of the equipment to protect you. You don't go into a game with shoulder pads, with your thigh and hip pads in place, and with cleats, but with no helmet. It's not going to work out good for you. You don't go, go into a game with your shoulder pads and helmet and flip-flops. It's probably not going to go well for you. You want your full armor on as you engage. And now Paul walks you through the full armor of God. Six things. Belt of truth. Which is the first thing, which sounds funny. Most of us don't start off getting dressed by putting a belt on. But the first thing is the belt of truth. Because the belt for 
a, a person in the army then, it held everything else together. It was the center of all of the armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, shoes fitted for the readiness of the gospel of peace is what it says. A shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, a sword of the spirit. When our kids were younger, a lot of times before they would go to uh, PDO, Parents Day Out up here at the church, we would walk them through and we would like put on the armor of God as we were about to march into our day. It's a good thing. Don't put on some of the armor, all of the armor. And then as Paul walks through the armor of God, he ends with this in verse 18. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And pray also for me. This is a verse I often give people to pray for me on Sunday mornings. Pray for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, and pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Paul ends the book of Ephesians by encouraging the church to march into the world, not to shrink back. The reason you put the full armor of God on isn't to protect you from the world. It is to give you everything you need to move into the world. And there are Christians in churches and pastors and authors who will write faith-based stuff in which they want you to be afraid of the world. It's almost like sometimes the message we hear, and I hope I don't ever do this to you, but sometimes the message we hear is the world is a crazy place to be, so protect yourself. Or the world is a crazy place to be, so stay away from it when the message of the gospel is God is good. And because God is good, we move into the world. Love doesn't spread by shrinking back. Love only spreads by moving. We move, we press in. Now flip over to Matthew chapter 16 for me real quick. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, it says this, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I know I've preached this probably ten times in the history of or just me being here at Sycamore View. One of my favorite stories in all the Gospels. And in this, there's a question Jesus asks. And the question Jesus asks his followers are, Who do people say I am? Like, what are they saying about me? And then Jesus asked a very specific question. Who do you say I am? And I think Jesus, when he gets really specific, who do you say I am? There is an answer Jesus is looking for. Because there are a lot of things that Jesus is. But I don't think in this moment Jesus was looking for being the bread of life. Or being the way, the truth, and the life. The answer was, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Like, you are Lord of all. Julius Caesar and everyone coming after him, they're not the Lord of everything. You are the Lord of everything. You're the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. And it's with that confession that Jesus says, on that confession right there, I'm building my church. And the gates of Hades won't be able to stop it. What Jesus teaches his apostles in that moment is that we're not the ones shrinking back, setting up the gate. The powers of darkness are the ones setting up the gate because the church is a force in the world for good. What I love about Ephesians 6 and what I love about Matthew chapter 16, it's not just the content, it's the location. If you throw up this first image, you can walk streets of Ephesus today and you can see parts of ancient Ephesus where they had this huge amphitheater that could sit seat 20,000 people you can go down in it and you can speak without any microphone and you can hear things that are happening all around that place and then if you go to the next picture many people think this is much like what ancient Ephesus would have looked like 
And Ephesus, and we know this from stories, both in Scripture and in history, Ephesus was a city of around 250,000 people with over two dozen pagan temples, and it was known for witchcraft and magic. And you read that in Acts chapter 19. And in Acts 19, this church in Ephesus started with 12 people, 12 followers of Jesus in a city of 250,000 people. Do they even stand a chance? And right there at the center of the city of Ephesus, is one of, it was one of the ancient wonders of the world, one of the largest pagan temples. Like right everywhere you are in Ephesus, you could see it. A large keg fest was held in Ephesus every year where a million people would come just to get drunk in the city of Ephesus. Twelve people caught the fire of God. Do they even stand a chance? And for those twelve people, it wasn't of how do we go and just take over the city. It's how do we make a difference in someone's life today? And within a few decades, that church grew and grew to tens of thousands of people in churches throughout Ephesus. Started with 12, spread throughout an entire city because they knew that when the good news of God takes hold of you, you don't shrink back. You press in. For Jesus in Matthew 16 to go to Caesarea Philippi, you can walk places in ancient Caesarea Philippi today which was known for all forms of immorality. It was known to be uh, the gate, uh, the uh, gate to the underworld, and you had all these little uh, niches and little windows where they would place the god Pan, P-A-N. It was a city known for its immorality. And it wasn't on the way to anywhere, so for Jesus to take his disciples somewhere to teach them not just about who he was, but about the mission of God, he went to Caesarea Philippi for them to know that when this message takes hold of people, we don't shrink back. It's the powers of darkness that are setting up the gates because the church is on the move. This is what we do and this is who we are. One of my greatest concerns in life is this. It's not that people will die. It's that while we are alive, that we will lose the meaning of what it means to live life. Of course I don't want people to die. But my greatest concern isn't that people will die, it's that while we, while you, while we are alive, that we will lose our meaning for life, that we will lose our purpose. And as a church that for over 45 years now, what has been rooted in our DNA is service. And I hope it only increases in the future. Our care for a community, our care for a city, our care for the homeless. Like We are a church that we want to do service well. And the only way service can sustain itself is if service is rooted in what is most important is the heart of God. We don't serve because we are called to be good people. We serve because we are people who've been touched by God and we have the story of Jesus to share with the world. Mother Teresa, who made Calcutta her home, who opened up a place that took care of the poorest of the poor, people who were dying and who were sick. Every day, working in Calcutta, someone was going to die. And you tend to all these patients, all these clients who were sick and dying, and they bring them to this place where they experience the love of God while they are suffering their illness and while they're breathing their last breath. And for anyone who's ever like interned or been an apprentice out in Calcutta, they talk about like the smiles on the faces of people who work there, even though they're surrounded by so much brokenness. And one of the reasons is there's a discipline there. There's a practice that every morning 
when you wake up at 4 a.m., and don't turn me off just because you hear me talking about waking up at 4 a.m., all right? At 4 a.m., they don't go and begin to serve. They go to the chapel where they pray and they sing songs and they seek the face of God. So before they enter into any rooms with their patients, before they enter, enter into anywhere to spread the love of God, they have thrown themselves in worship. International Justice Mission, IJM, for, over, for a few decades now, they go throughout the world and they're trying to rescue kids who've been forced into slavery. And they're not just trying to rescue kids, they're also taking down oppressors. And they're doing great work all over the world. And as they launched their organization, they made a commitment that if you work here, you will give God the first fruits of your day. So when they show up in the office, they don't begin making phone calls of how they are helping rescue people today or how they are taking down oppressors. For the first 30 minutes, they are called into a posture of silence and reflection of scripture to be with God because they know the only way we can move forward with God in this day is for us to be reminded of who we are in God. We serve because of who we are in Jesus. A few centuries, uh, in the third, fourth century, Christianity was a few hundred years old. There was a fight between two theologians, not a fist fight, but they were going after each other's theology. It was Augustine and it was Pelagius. And Augustine, much of his life, he squandered away his youth and immorality, was a womanizer, and by the way he lived his life, he made a lot of enemies. He had anger streaks in him. He's not the kind of person you would want to be around. And then you have Pelagius, who grew up in church, grew up who knew God, and he was urban, he was uh, socially uh, smart, uh, uh, socially he was very bright, he was courteous, he was convincing, he was liked by everyone, I mean he just had this personality that just drew people to him. Augustine was a guy that when he met Jesus later on in life, he began to, he started from God's grace. And because of this, like in so many ways, Augustine got it right. Pelagius was someone who started from human effort. And later on in his life, I think he got it wrong. Augustine was a guy who passionately pursued God. Pelagius was one who methodically worked to please God. And Philip Yancey, who references Eugene Peterson talking about Pelagius and Augustine says this Augustine desperately needed God and he knew it and Eugene Peterson goes on to say that Christians tend to be Augustinian in theory but Pelagian in practice that they rely on their own frenzied efforts committee meetings guilt-driven overtime obs obsessive attempts to fix other people's problems but go back to that statement Augustinian in theory so many Christians they talk a game of grace but the way they live their lives, the way sometimes we live our lives is we want to make sure we have done enough for God that we're still in. Have we done enough? And when it comes to service and the way we live our lives with Jesus, it's not about have we done enough. It's not trying to please or appease God. It's not trying to earn the favor of God. It's knowing and living from a place that the grace of God has changed us forever. And you don't have to try to earn that grace. You're given the grace. And because of that, we march into the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 starts with Paul calling the church their saints. 
all these people who most likely grew up in Ephesus participating in all kind of pagan activities and the way he calls them the first thing he calls them is you are saints of God and when saints are at their best we're not just marching into heaven we're marching into the world so today as we take the bread and the cup there is so much to celebrate we had a new sister in Christ this morning testimonies of how people have experienced God throughout this summer adult volunteers who gave a vacation time this summer to be with our students the songs we sung digging around in Ephesians 6 Matthew 16 we come to the bread and the cup that reminds us what this is all about and I'm so grateful in this moment we don't come to a table in which God comes to us on a zoom call or from distance that God is at this table with us so as we take the bread and the cup, be reminded of what our mission is. Know that in this moment we are reaching for Jesus. And know that in this moment Jesus is reaching for you. And know that the bread and the cup tells you that there's nothing you can do that can earn the favor of God. This is a gift of God. The bread and the cup is something we receive. And it changes us. And it causes us to be different kind of people this week. Your past doesn't define you. Your worst mistake doesn't define you. This meal defines you. We are the children of God. And we share in this meal together. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. For God, for all you have done in this world, throughout history, and this morning, in the life of the Sycamore View Church, we give you thanks. And with open hands and open hearts, we take the bread and we take the cup today. We receive it in your name. Transform us into your image. Let us go out of this place today, not just waiting to experience you again next Sunday, but making commitments to taking a step closer to you today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I want to ask a shepherd. I think Brandon Cooper may be our shepherd this morning. If you'll just come up front to receive people for prayer, we will have a shepherd. I don't know who's in the back, but one of our elders will be in the back to receive you. And over the next few minutes, move at your own pace to receive the bread and the cup from one of our own tables.